Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Kim Jorgensen Richard. Kim is a first time author of the book Rock Covery, Not Your Mother's Meditation Book, now available on Amazon.com. She is a lifelong resident of Southeastern Massachusetts, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, a woman in recovery from trauma and addiction, and of course, a fan of all things rock and roll. She first began her recovery journey in 1987 at a detox in Fall River, Mass. In the 10 years that followed, she began her career in the field of addiction treatment, started a family, and continued to stay on the path of recovery. Eventually, though, she became distracted by her good fortune and decided to celebrate with a drink, thus beginning a three-year relapse. Fortunately, she never stopped seeking treatment and eventually began to find traction on her road to recovery. She does not apologize for her relapse, but acknowledges it as one of the most powerful life lessons that she has ever experienced. She credits this experience as a key influence in maintaining her recovery today and one of the motivations behind her book, Rock Covery, Not Your Mother's Meditation Book. Today, a woman in long-term active recovery from alcohol and any other numbing agents or activities, Kim is a project director at an area human service agency providing reentry assistance for individuals diagnosed with substance use or co-occurring disorders. Her mission is to chip away at the stigma surrounding these disorders, providing hope to people devastated by trauma, addiction, and mental health issues by sharing her own experiences with these same conditions. Kim enjoys spending time with her soul sisters in recovery, hanging out with her kids, watching the Patriots, obviously, and documentaries, going to the gym and the beach, and of course, listening to music and going to concerts with her guy. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, please enjoy my friend, you know her, as Kim Jorgensen Richard. Episode 37. Let's do this. Kim, welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Ashley, for having me. You have an incredible story and you have even written a meditation book. Yes. What's your meditation book called? So my meditation book is called Recovery, Mm -hmm. not your mother's meditation book. (laughs) And so this book is just a daily reader based on rock music that really kind of highlights some of the struggles that, you know, I've been through and I kind of use each page as, as like an AA meeting, like, so what it was like, what happened and you know, what it's like now or what it can be like. And so I tried to kind of capture a meeting on every, an AA meeting on every page and then kind of sum it up with today's chorus. So, um, there's a song that prompts the writing and then a little today's chorus at the end. So I thought loving music, most of my, all of my life and, you know, getting a lot of my esteem from writing, uh, putting those two things together, like was kind of natural for me. Yeah. Super cool idea. I Thank love you. it. You're obviously British. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, New England. Yeah, yep, exactly. So you are, um, where in New England are you? 
So I'm in southeastern Mass, um, close to Cape Cod. So Fairhaven, Massachusetts, which is right outside New Bedford, Massachusetts. And so New Bedford has, and this area has like just been ravaged by the opiate, you know, crisis. I think we all have, um, but it's really been um, pretty bad here. We have a huge fishing port. We're conveniently located to all the major highways, so so it's yeah. a natural, you know, yeah, yeah, and, pad for that. And um, your your father was a fisherman. Yes, my father was a Norwegian immigrant, and he came over in the late fifties um, to. He landed in New York City uh, on a merchant marine ship, and probably I don't know how long it was, but. It was only a short time later that my mother was also in Brooklyn, New York. After leaving her hometown of Detroit, Michigan, she was also Norwegian, first born in America. Um, So she's the first generation Norwegian-American. And so she was in New York City, um, self-admitted alcoholic as time went on. But at that time, she was... Self-admitted partier. Self-admitted partier. And she met my dad at a boarding house where he was staying and... He asked her to go to, a, I don't know, a, some kind of fisherman's dance or some kind of dance. And so she agreed. And three months later, they got married. And so that was the beginning of their was, love story. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Did they talk about um, did they talk about being an immigrant a lot when you were growing up? So Norwegians are very excited about being Norwegian, although we would never admit it. You know, <laughs> it's uh something that we're, there's a very proud tradition of, you know, being hardworking, um, proud and, you know, strong and we can do it. We're Vikings, that kind of, and just all of that, you know, will, you know? Yeah. Willpower. Uh, willpower. So yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of that weaved in. And so, our. so your mom was self-proclaimed alcoholic and your dad, you know, Norwegian fisherman, and you ended up in a household where your family was Jehovah's Witness. Did how did that happen? Did they become Jehovah's Witnesses? Did your was your father a Jehovah's Witness no. before he came to America? No, my father was never a Jehovah's Witness. Um, oh, ever, ever, yeah. Ah. But you know, he wasn't around enough to have to, you know, comply. Yeah, have to comply with that. Nor did he want to? So it was just an understanding that my mother was going to um, raise us in her way, what she believed. And she was just following orders from her mother, you know? So right. we all her, had to be. How uh, did her, so her mother was in Detroit? So her mom was, they were all originally living in Detroit, Michigan. And my grandmother um, was practicing and she'd have the witnesses over and her husband wasn't too keen on it either. Um, and so then she brought her children to, I guess, the kingdom, kingdom hall at that time in Detroit, Michigan. I'm not really clear. I don't go that far back with it, but I know that, um, my grandmother remained from the time she landed in Canada to the time she died. She remained a devout Jehovah's witness, um, baptized and she brought her children up that way. And her children were expected to bring up their children that way. And that's what my mother did, although she didn't get baptized into the religion until uh, in her later years. But So how did, what was it like growing up in a home where your dad's not around a lot and your mother is an alcoholic Jehovah's Witness? Um, <laughs> and there are six children, right? Um, yeah, so there's six of us. So what it was like was 
it was insane because my grandmother was also an alcoholic with mental health issues undiagnosed. So there would be times when in my household, there would be um, my mom drinking, my grandmother drinking, my half-brother probably drinking, and there would be fistfights in the middle of the living room between my mother, well, between my half-brother who was beating on my mother while my grandmother cheered on my brother. So she would be cheering on my half-brother to continue beating on my mother. Why? I really think that my grandmother, my grandmother had an issue with the fact that my mother was extremely beautiful, like strikingly beautiful. And so my grandmother, this is just my version. Yeah. My grandmother wasn't, didn't have that going on for herself. And I really think she was jealous of that, or there was some, some kind of disdain for my mother. And, that, and that's all I could come up with. Why would it be, why would it be okay for the half brother to beat up the mother? Like what, what, what did that, how, how would something like that happen? So my grandmother took my half brother in while my mother uh, was, went to New York city. And she took him and she said to my mother that she wouldn't give him back until my mother found someone. And this was back in the late 50s. And so illegitimate children, you know, we heard the stories. Um, So I think that she had some kind of ownership of my half brother. Uh, They had uh, like more of a connection than my mother and my brother. I think they bonded first. Mm -hmm. That was his closest and most important relationship because my mother wasn't around. Right. So I think that's I think that's how it played out. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so music was a big part of your childhood as well. What how what did that look like? So what that looked like was whenever there was music playing, it was kind of like a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. And so my mother being from Motown, uh enjoyed uh Motown and she blast blasted it on the stereo. Um Diana Ross and the Supremes, the you know, I don't know, all those um Smokey Robinson. And and you knew that when that music was playing, it was safe to come come out. You know, there wasn't a lot. It was joyful. And um, I really, and my mother sang a lot. I think one thing about my whole family is like we really bonded um, around music. We really all, despite everything, we really all had a, a love of music. So when when music was around, it seemed like there was peace and joy even in the house. So... Yeah, yeah, that's nice that you had that. Yes. that respite. There were six of you. What is the age difference mm-hmm. between the the siblings? So uh, the age difference is um, two years apart, with the exception of the two youngest, who are I would say Irish twins, but they're Norwegian twins. <laughs> so they are like nine months apart, wow. and we refer to them when they were younger as the babies. Right. So there's two years between us all. Okay, two years between. And what was your experience growing up in the home? So my experience growing up in the home was that of identified patient. I mean, looking back now, I didn't know it then. So when I was like a year and a half old, um, I still wasn't walking, but I was smiling. So I was like mobile, I mean, immobile and smiling. So that that made for the perfect baby. Um, But finally, someone said, don't you think she should be walking by now? And so 
my mom took me to the pediatrician and he diagnosed me with cerebral palsy. And so I spent a lot of my time going to Children's Hospital in Boston and it was a teaching hospital. So they were kind of fascinated, poking and prodding and having to do physical therapy and exercises. And so that was good for me because I was able to have that alone time with my mother and some sober time. But sometimes on the way back from Boston, things could get hairy. We could end up in a tenement building with uh, another woman my mother met who was also an alcoholic and they'd be drinking in, who knows, Charlestown, who knows? I don't remember where I was, but I know that um, there were times when coming back from Boston, uh, my mother would have her bottle in her pocketbook. And, and what was that like when she, was she a nice drunk or was she, what was? So my mother crossed the line into blackout a lot. And so um, it was like, you never knew when that was going to happen. And as a young person, you don't know that that's what's happening. You just know, uh-oh, things are going south, you know, and it's very, very frightening. So so for me growing up, I had a lot of one-on-one time, which I look at now is, is really positive, but there was also a lot of stuff that I was like forced to guess what was going on, you know, as, as you have to when you come from an alcoholic home, it's like, okay, you have to kind of get a read on something really quick to be able to, you know, move to safety or right. figure it out. So that Do was you part rem- of my experience too. Do you remember any time where, like a time where you had to get a read on something and got yourself to safety um, at a time where maybe it was not age appropriate for someone to be in that situation? So there was uh, like, but we always had, my brothers and sisters were always pretty much there with me. So I think my older brother really had the brunt of not my half brother, but the brother above me, he really had to take the brunt of being the caretaker for the rest of us when he really shouldn't have been in that situation. Because there were times when um, my mom would black out and she'd, as soon as my father left the dock, um, she'd be hitting it heavy because, you know, I guess she felt like now her permission slipped to, to do to go wild. And so she'd take us on road trips. And so there were times when she took us on road trips to Newport, Rhode Island, where we'd be at the Marriott on Goat Island, which I don't know if you're familiar, but, and she'd be in the bathroom, you know, threatening to commit suicide and he'd have to call 911. So it was more, he really had the brunt of that. And I don't even really remember like how those things ended. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard that a lot. Like, okay, how did we get home? Yeah. I remember the actual climax of the story, but how did we get home? So there was a lot of stuff that wasn't age appropriate for any of us, but yeah, you know, um, thank God he was there to kind of and then keep things manageable for people who don't know. Can you tell us about what living with cerebral palsy was like? So um, I had a and I it's a really mild case of cerebral palsy, but I I think of how it affected me is that I was kind of doted on and really not asked to participate in, uh, I wasn't able to reach my full potential having, have, having that label on me at the time. And I guess another thing is in the seventies, if you had like a, if you had something that was like, they considered a handicap or something, you were automatically put in special needs, even though there was nothing wrong with my, you know, mental capacity to learn. Um, but it's something they just excluded you from the rest. So like what, what it was like is I was kind of 
labeled as someone who couldn't do what the rest of the folks could do or the rest of the children could do. And also, you know, she doesn't understand anything. They just put that extra having to go to Title One. I don't know what you guys call it on the West Coast, but the resource room or Title One or I don't know what they call it, but go for extra help. So and that label was really throughout my life, the victim help, the learned helplessness, you know, um, and the victimhood and all that stuff. I capitalized on it, believe me, uh, you know, when I needed to use it, I, I used it. it but, but it also worked a, against me in a way that like I never thought I could do the things that I now do in sobriety, thank God. But I had to smash those belief systems that I held because they, they kind of worked for me. But then they stop working, you know, right, as, right. as, as most do. As they do, yeah. yeah. And you had some trauma um, when you were younger. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, so I uh, myself and my sister were abused by a relative, um, sexually abused, and so that was um, extremely traumatic um, for us and very frightening um, at the time for me because, um, and frightening for my sister too, because at one point, like, I guess it started around when we were like, I was six and my sister was like four. So there was a lot of like, I I was older. So I was able to kind of like resist a little and say, you know, question, wait, what is this? What's happening? And so this family member would say, Hey, wait, she, you know, Jeanette's doing it. What's, you know, why can't you? So there's a lot of peer pressure to allow it. And so that was a little um, tough because I guess the frightening part came later. I guess I'm jumping ahead. Um, When I had to, when I said I stood up for myself finally after, I don't know, I guess um, for me, it went on two to three years. And I said, listen, because it got to a point where it was like progressively getting more daring and more the acts were getting more daring and more aggressive or I don't know. I don't even know how to put it, but it was progressing to more outrageous acts. Not that any of the acts were not outrageous, but I mean like it's really pretty bad at this one time. And so I said, if you don't, you know, get off me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell. And so I was never touched again. But the frightening part of, for me was, and this is where me and my sister uh, have this closeness, is like we shared a room. So I was always on the lookout for this relative and really had a difficult time uh, sleeping or like I wanted to protect her because well into adulthood, this relative continued to pursue her. And so um, we went to Disney Um, This person was there and I had to constantly, I was afraid when my parents went out at Disney that, oh no, it's going to happen again. And like, will I be able to protect her? And so there was always like a lot of terror in protecting her. And because somehow I, of all the things I didn't have, the one thing I always kind of did, did have and still have and gets me into trouble is that voice to say, wait, no way. No. So so this is going on and your your sister, this person would continue to do this to her even when you were in the room or how did how did he pursue her once 
you put the we basically said this isn't going to work anymore. So he um, found ways to get her alone. Um, we she had a room, but once we moved to, so my father his fishing took him to Alaska. But once um, we moved to a different location uh, in a bigger home, um, we did there was more room, so there was more ability to gain access um, to her. And thankfully, he was sent away. Uh, he did go away and leave the area. So during those times, we were, we were safe. So that was good, too. Um, but there were times even if he'd come back, um, there were times when, you know, he'd pursue her. And luckily, she was able to protect herself from him. Or, you know, we, we I don't know, we, she just was able to protect herself. But then there were times when she wasn't. So what would have happened if you had told your parents or your mother? So my sister ended up telling my mother and um, he was already gone because he had gone to jail. He went to jail for another crime of sexual assault. That happened in Alaska and he went away for 12 years. So he raped somebody. Yes. So that kind of was a reprieve. And so did that help your mom believe my mom always believed, but she told my sister, I believe told my mother after he had been sentenced and was doing time. And I, I thought because she knew about her that she must've known that it was happening to me too. But I didn't tell her until I was in sober house at 20 years old and she's like, I knew about Jeanette, but I had no idea. I said, you didn't know? Like, I thought, I just thought she knew. So I did tell her and she said, oh, if, you know, if I had a gun, I'd kill him, you know? And we never told my dad. And so I never told my dad about this relative and the assault, even till 2008, he still didn't know. And the reason for that was my dad, that would have been a bad end. Yeah. 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 Really bad because there was already bad blood between them yeah, for most of my relative's life, most of that relative's life. So how do you think that shaped your addiction? What, how did your, did your, did that start your addiction? Um, or did you start using to cope with the feeling of being afraid all the time? So, yeah, I was really, I was so afraid that I couldn't talk on the phone. And I've heard other, some of your other guests talk about that extreme self-centered fear. And I had that too. I just could not, if my mom said, go into the store and get me a gallon of milk, I wasn't able to do it. I'm like, I can't go in there. She's like, oh my God, you're full of self-centered fear, you know? And I'm like, what does that even mean? But anyway, she was right. I couldn't go in and I was really fearful. Also, I was overweight. I had, you know, limited physical, you know, confidence. Um, I had just, I really didn't have much going for me, a pair of orthopedic shoes, you know, and so I didn't feel beautiful um, or pretty or any of that stuff. And so when I found alcohol, like that was, that was terrific. That yeah. was the magic elixir really well, was. And- it, and being overweight young, was that, was there a piece of that, that food started as the first Oh yeah, comfort? My first addiction was um, marshmallows mm-hmm. and Nestle Quick 
the powder powder straight yeah. up <laughs> straight up out of the <laughs> yeah the hard stuff but, yeah i would imagine that living in a home where not only do you feel like you're going to be preyed on literally at any moment and particularly starting from such a young age with someone who has a lot of access and then also i know being an older sister i mean i'd kill someone for my you know i i that and just be feeling as protective as you do around your sibling, you know, a younger sister being afraid for her safety. And of course, knowing what that feels like. So you actually have something to compare it to and all of those. And then mom and all, I mean, that's a lot of complex trauma and complex emotions. Frankly, any healthy person would need a cope, you know, some serious coping skills with that stuff. So it makes complete sense that you would seek things to to help with that. I mean, yeah, definitely. How, how could you not? Sugar's still, uh, you know, yeah, a struggle. What were some of your physical limitations? Where you were able to walk? I could walk, but in recess and gym class, and I'd trip a lot. That was like, okay. oh my god, I was constantly falling on my face, and um, not able to like keep up on the playground or in the gym class or so I was labeled as like, you know, the last one picked for the whatever kickball. But you couldn't, to the naked eye, you couldn't see that anything was wrong. No. Okay. No. Okay. So maybe in, I don't, in some ways that was complicated because it didn't look like. Yeah. It didn't show. And so people didn't know. And so I've read up on that too, uh, in my sobriety about, people who have, because there's not much going on as far as like adult CP in a mild adult CP, as far as research, because it's invisible. It's just starting to, yeah. Starting to get information about that. And so, um, I've read up about people who've had mild cases who felt, um, like it was a lot worse. Not that I'm saying it, what it is, but just because of the, you know, the invisible, not being able to see. Yeah. Yeah. How did your alcoholism progress? So, oh, let's see. So I had three seven and sevens when I was 12 years old at a wedding and I felt like a princess. I felt very graceful, although I did trip again. You know, I felt very beautiful and graceful and, you know, just like, this is it. This is the, this is what I've been looking for. And uh, my mother was just got sober probably a year or two before that. And she didn't go to this wedding. She just dropped me and my brother's girlfriend off. And my brother's girlfriend, uh, she was one of the first people I drank with. And she was also in my first round with rec- with sobriety. She was one of the last people. So she was like the bookend. Yeah. The bookender. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, three, seven and sevens. And I tripped over, a, I don't know, a a chair. I didn't fall though, but then this woman looked at me, some woman I didn't even know. And she gave me such a look of disgust and I didn't understand like, why is she looking at me like that? Life is beautiful. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. And obviously I got that look a few more times in my life and I came to understand why she was looking at me like that. So it started there and then it was a weekend warrior. Um, so I was in junior high school now. The bullying was still going on. But then I found that group of people, as everybody who, I I don't know, most people do. They find that group of people that drink and drug like they do. Although 
it wasn't drugs. It was like marijuana and drinking on the weekend in the woods. So I went uh, and sought out and met these people and they kind of were like my family and they protected me from being bullied. Uh, No one like we had the jocks and the burnouts. Well, I was a burnout, obviously, you know, so yeah. So we hung together on the weekends. We pulled together our money and we were in wood shop on Friday. I can remember we had these rulers that we'd use to measure wood, I guess. And we'd like use it as like, okay, Kim has $10 and we'd use that as a scale for how much money all of us could pull together and what we were going to buy with it that night by the guy who was standing outside the packy. I'm going to use a New England term, um, standing outside the packy uh, to buy us our alcohol. So that's and, how it started. And ha- when did you, so your mom had gotten sober at this time. Did she recognize the progression at all? So what she recognized is that the people that I was changing, she recognized that the people I was hanging around with probably weren't the people she was used to seeing me hang around with. And so she was a little concerned that way. We have this this road in our town um, that is long and wooded. And my mother would patrol that road more than the police. Now, if the police were coming, my gang of friends would say, okay, we only need to go a little bit back behind the tree line. But if they saw Judy coming in her LTD, we'd run like hell because she'd get out of the car and chase us because she knew something. She was losing her grasp Um, what I was doing, but she knew it couldn't have been good. Um, But she never really, she knew I had alcoholic tendencies, I'm sure, by saying things like I have self-centered fear, but she never really recognized the problem until um, my 20, like till around my 20s. That's when she, or late teens or like 20, um, she knew then that oh, this, oh my God, she's an alcoholic, you know, right, or like, maybe she wasn't ready to admit it. Yeah. Um, I mean, she knew something cause she was patrolling. So oh, people yeah. don't patrol for no oh, reason. <laughs> and she, like when she did find me at times drunk out of my mind, she, she blamed, she blamed the people I was hanging around with. Mm-hmm. So she'd go from house to house. She'd stop at door to door and talk to each parent and say, listen, my daughter's drunk. You might want to check your daughter. She might be drunk too. And um, she'd go to every, I wasn't very popular after oh, that because, no. you know, and they were afraid of Judy because she'd do the door to door thing, letting everyone know that these kids are drinking and, you know, beware. And so she definitely, she, she was definitely something. worried. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like the reason I say this is because she didn't like when we spoke in my, first recovery round with recovery at 20 or 21, she said, I knew something was wrong, but it, I didn't know it was alcoholism until like, until just recently. And I'm like, wow. Which did is it? interesting because he had gotten sober. I know. So you would think that would be top of mind. Yes. Maybe she just didn't want to see it. Yeah. Because really I was the, the good girl. Like I was the, right. You know, the one that was like, oh, you know. Yeah, right. She couldn't. Him. Yeah, right, you know? right. Yeah. So then you met you met someone at twenty. 
So I met you met someone at 16, 16, 17 years old. I just turned 16 in August and I, I knew this guy cause I, you know, thought he was awesome cause he was 21. He had tattoos. He was like, he wore a leather vest and like all that eighties stuff. <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, he, he was something. And I really had a crush on him. And then he found out I had a crush on him. And so he asked me out and he was able to buy booze. I didn't have to wait around outside in the cold for that random guy to buy us alcohol. I had it built right in and that made me love him even more. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It became so much more attractive then, but um, this is all in hindsight, but I really, I really was crazy about him. He was my first, first love, you know, or what I thought my definition of that at the time. Yeah. So I met him and we, he was really very instrumental in me graduating from high school because he'd withhold love if I didn't show up for class. He would be, uh, uh, uh. He kind of was that father figure guy in those ways. And he kind of got me to stop taking hallucinogenics uh, during school. He got me to cut down on, you know, smoking weed and all those things. And so I was able to graduate from high school. And so I I credit him for that because there really wasn't a lot uh, going on at my house that that could restrain me uh, or or put me on the right path. But if you're going to, you know, threaten my supply of uh, love or whatever that was, uh, I was going to fall in line. Yeah. And, and how did that relationship progress? So we met, I was drinking. He didn't, he didn't drink a lot, but he supplied me with alcohol. When we would go to keg parties, he would say, okay, you've had enough. And I couldn't, I did not stop regardless of what he said. And he'd have to like physically remove me from those weekend keg parties. And then I began to drink more and um, we had broken up and then we got, and I was like, so devastated because it was like a codependent hostage taking situation that I was withdrawing from. I was detoxing from him, although I didn't know it at the time. And when we got back together, I got pregnant. And so, um, how old were you when that happened? So 19 years old. Okay. 19. So you graduated from high school. I did graduate from high school. Yep. And so shortly after high school is when we broke up for a minute and then we got back together and, um, I got pregnant. And what happened was that in 1985 or no, sorry, 1986, I was due in August of 1986 and I had the baby in April. And so I went to premature labor on a Thursday night while the Cosby show was on. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I'm like, uh Oh, I didn't know because I didn't know it was labor. I thought it was gas pains. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I think, you know, I'm crampy. I, you know, I think it just, how far along were you? I was five months, April, May, June, July, August. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were five. Okay. So you were doing, okay. And so August 1st was your, was your, were you living at home? So I had, I have so much baggage. It's so hard to keep track of where I was at the time. But (laughs) at this time I was back in my mom's house after going out and being on my own, getting kicked out of my house and all that stuff. But I was now back in the home because I was pregnant 
And my boyfriend was kind of there, kind of not there. He was like playing around on the side. And so that was slipping. I could feel it slipping away. Um, And so anyway, he happened to be coming over that night. So he said, we're going to the hospital. So we went to the local hospital that didn't have all the, they didn't have a maternity ward. Um, So they sent me to another hospital. And so that hospital back in those days, had it been now, they probably could have um, saved her. But um, I went into labor and about three or four hours later, I had her, um, Bethany Megan, and um, she was about a pound, a little over a pound. And so that was like devastating. I didn't even know what I did. Like looking back, I'm like, wow, I didn't, I was so numb that I didn't even know what I didn't know. Yeah. If I could go back and hug that uh, 19-year-old, I would. So they came in and read the last rites. And so they knew she wasn't going to survive. So they knew she wasn't going to survive. And so everyone had left after they read her the last rites. And this was done by a priest, which kind of freaked me out because I, that wasn't something that was part of my world. And so I was a little, that kind of scared me. And my mom was there with her new boyfriend who I never met before. So (laughs) that was weird also. And um, then I had this baby and now this baby is going to die. So that was also, it was just my, the whole scene. Was the boyfriend there? He was there. Yes, he was. And um, uh, my mom was more there with me than, than he was. He had to leave the room at certain times because he just was too much. Yeah. And so then, you know, he'd tap out and then my mother would come in the room and, you know, so they said, when everyone left, they said, Kim, do you want to hold the baby? Now, normally I would be, I don't want anything to do with holding this baby, but something inside me said, Kim, this, you need to do this. So I did it. And, and I just sat there holding this little baby in my hand. And I'm like, is this really happening? I was almost like it was happening to someone else. And I couldn't even, I was so messed up that I, like, I couldn't even conjure up any kind of feeling. I'm like, okay, I know how I'm probably supposed to feel in this moment, but I have nothing. So I did what it looked like I was supposed to do, you know, cause I had some kind of idea and, um, you know, the real trauma, I think, I think it was on your podcast. The real trauma didn't happen till, till later. You've talked about that in other episodes. So then we had a funeral and my ex well, my boyfriend at the time took care of the whole, the whole thing. And, um, you know, it was a very nice service. And then right after that, immediately after that, he went his way to a friend's house and I went my way to a friend's house and I proceeded to snort an eight ball, um, with my friend because yeah, that's, I was going to mourn now and I I had permission who wouldn't snort an eight ball after. Yeah. I mean, after that, when, especially when you have no coping skills, I mean, right. (laughs) Um, that was my permission slip. Like if you, you know, if this just happened to you, yeah, you know, so you do it too, which was, you know, obviously the only way I could see it at the time. Did and so did you ever speak to him again? Yes, yes, I I have. So when I got sober this past time, well, I I spoke to him, you know, during my first sobriety. It's really kind of choppy. I'm sorry about that, but during my first sobriety, 
he he and I spoke. He told me he had gotten a stone for her her grave, which was really nice. He came into some money and he was able to put a stone at the grave site because when we were young, that young, we didn't have that kind of cash, but he was able to to do that, and that was beautiful. And when when I got sober the second time, he came over and we had a brief like consider like I was divorced and um, he was going through a divorce and we kind of reconsidered like, should we go on a date? And he asked me out on a date and, and we started off that date by going to the, <laughs> going to the grave, grave site. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that probably wasn't a good yeah. <laughs> way to start things, but we did. And uh, then I said, you know what? I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I can't, you know, but uh, we remained friendly and then, through some series of events when I said, I can't do that. Um, I can't pursue this. I felt like he wasn't being respectful of uh, my boundaries. And um, so since then, we haven't really spoken. So the, the you talked about getting sober. So when did you get sober? So the first time I got sober was 20. Mm-hmm. And so after, I went, shortly after? Yes. Bethany so was born? After Bethany was born... In April, I got sober. April of 86, she was born. And in February of 87, I was in a sober house. Okay. Um, after going to a detox in Fall River, Mass. So so I got sober at 20, and it was the most awesome. I found my tribe of people. Like, uh, that's all I can say. I felt like I belonged there. And mind you, I've been going to meetings with my mother, too. So, right. So this wasn't um, new. I knew the deal. It wasn't yeah. anything that was foreign to me or that I was uncomfortable there. Most people knew me already. So it just seemed like a natural fit. And I felt like accepted. I felt like, wow, it did everything that booze did for me right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I really felt that, that vibe and, and having heard your story, like when you get sober young, you think it's going to be terrible, but it was like a blast. Mm-hmm. Like I consider my halfway house is like my, my time away at college. Yeah. Yeah. College, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was really great. I had a good time and, um, I learned how to live life without a drink. I learned a lot of things in, uh, I learned about, uh, accountability in the halfway house and, um, how to be part of a, of a family, you know, so to speak, how to make a dinner, how to make a bed, how to show up for meetings, all those fundamental things, how to get along with others how to work things out. So it really was the best. Like I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And I've made a lot of lifelong friends that I still have today. So yeah, I have, th- I have that same experience. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's just one of those things where you just, it's just a totally different experience than you think it's going to yeah. be. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at 
www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. How long did you stay sober? So a boy met girl on a campus mm-hmm. in nine. Well, and I got married. Let's just skip ahead. Boy met girl on a campus in 1989 and my ex-husband and myself got married in 1992. Okay. He was total opposite of that first boyfriend. So I thought, well, it's going to work this time. He had a stable family um, and I really intended for it to work, but alcohol had other plans for that as well. So um, stable family. I fell in love with his family. They were so generous and normal husband, wife, you know, eight millimeter movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> all those things, the furniture matched, you know, so <laughs> they really, um, took me in and they were very loving and, oh, just the best, um, great family. And, um, he was a great man too. Very nice man. And, um, unfortunately when it talks about boy met girl on AA campus, um, uh, most of these marriages are successful, but if there's some underlying stuff going on, that might challenge things. And so, as you've just heard, I had a lot of underlying stuff going on and he had some of his own stuff, which is none of my business, but he had some of his stuff too. So we met, um, we fell in love. We got married. He was, he built this beautiful house in the country and I was like Cinderella being ushered in. And it's like, wow, AA does give you so much. You know, I was just like, oh, it was so magical. And uh, then, um, then it was so magical that I became complacent and I stopped going to meetings and I got pregnant and there was some vanity involved in that because I didn't want people to see me when I was pregnant. So I kind of stayed home. And then like, I had so much to keep me busy in this big house, like cleaning it and like getting things to buy. And like, he also was my ex-husband also was someone who made it possible for me to stay at home once my son was born. But um, before we got married and while I was still living with him, we I was able to get a job at my first detox. So that was really awesome. So I was able to work up until the time I got pregnant. And then once I got pregnant, the meetings went away. I fired my sponsor because I felt like she really... because. You know, I told her, hey, um, because we had had been having some challenges. And then the next thing you know, I'm telling her I'm pregnant. She's like, uh, Kim, uh, do you think maybe that's a good idea? But it was kind of too late. Yeah. You know, so I, you know, I didn't like that. She was kind of highlighting to, you know, be cautious. And I said, you know what? I stopped talking to her. So then I cut that off. I cut off meetings and slowly And that was in my first five years, I was pretty active. And then five years to 10 years, I was not at all active in AA, but I was active as far as uh, spending, eating, fantasizing about, you know, wanting things to be better, restless, irritable, and discontent, despite everything that I had in front of me, Um, a beautiful son, a nice husband, a nice place to live, all the trappings. Right. You know, I had it all. And um, I'm like, this sucks. Yeah. You know, I'm like, and then fear, that fear started coming back. I'm like, it was during times when, um, I hate to say this, mass shootings started to be on the rise. Um, And so 
um, I started thinking that these irrational fears, it's crazy, but it happens like I would be in a restaurant with my son and my husband. And I'd be so fearful that something bad was going to happen um, to us. I don't um, think that's irrational. I have those fears yeah. too. Yeah. It happens. Um, but, but there was no kind of reliance on anything to say yeah. or no ability to be able to calm myself down. So those fears started coming. And then, you know, the, that restless irritability and discontent was kind of running the show. He also was in AA, and so he wasn't going to meetings either. So you had two untreated alcoholics looking for things outside themselves to make them feel good with an unlimited supply of, of not unlimited, but, you know, a good credit line and a little bit of money. So like, no, let's sell this house and we'll move to this house. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen that in your life too. Okay, let's change, you know, where we live. And then I'm like, hey, and I had a sponsor who told me this, don't have any more ideas, okay? I'd always say, <laughs> hey, I got an idea. Like, and she's like, no. No more <laughs> no ideas. ideas. But like I had a lot of ideas like, oh, let's, we have a son, so let's have a, I want to have a daughter. Luckily, I had a daughter. Like, it was almost like I ordered it up and it was given, you know? And so she was given. And so, so we had moved and it still didn't feel quite like we felt much better had a baby. Uh, that didn't work. We kept coming up with ways we could feel better and nothing was working until one day when my daughter was six months, six months old and I was 10 years sober or 10, 10 years away from a drink. I had some after pains, like labor pains after childbirth, which were killing me. And during my, with my son, I was able to like monitor those medications, make sure I did it the right way. The way AA taught me was to have someone else hold them or take them, like have someone else monitor them for accountability. But this time I took them, I kept them in the cabinet. And one day at six months, those, those, I forgot what it was. Oxy. No, it wasn't Oxycode. It was, a, it was an opiate. What was it? Perks. It was Percocets. So I took um, some Percocets, and um, at six months sober, I was going to see Sticks in concert. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I think I'm going to drink today, but why don't I start off with taking some Perks? Um, so I took some Percocets, and then that really, like, lit the fire. But what I wanted to say, um, just prior to relapse, um, they talk a lot about nicotine dependence and how that can ignite a relapse. Um, they talk a lot about it in the treatment centers where I have worked. And so, um, I had quit smoking when my daughter, when I was pregnant with my daughter and what I was doing was I'd take off during her first six months. I'd, I'd take off and go and sneak a cigarette, drive around and smoke a cigarette. And it woke up that excitement in me that I was like getting away with something, you know? And I, I just, I want to mention that in case anyone feels like they're on that path, that excitement. Once that, that, that excitement got ignited, it was like, wow, what else could I do? Right. Oh. Right. Fear was no longer there. Excitement was, took its place. And so what I ended up doing was actually do, taking some Percocets and I, I wasn't someone who was big into opiates. I was, alcohol was my, my jam, so to speak. Um, but once I took those, I felt like, wow, like I can really tolerate anything right now, right, you know, right. It, it just felt good. And so that night I went out and 
to the Styx concert and sucked down some beers. And then because I was now 30, 33 years old, no, 30 years old, I was of age to drink. And so I went into, I wanted to catch up for lost time. I wanted to go in every bar room. I wanted to drink at a wedding. I wanted to, like everything I couldn't do, I was going to put on that alcoholic bucket list and get that, get that done. And um, so that's what I proceeded to do. And it took me about three years of struggling and people watching me and me. I kept going to meetings. I kept getting that one day chip. Um, in the meantime, my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer and she was stage four lung cancer. And so things weren't looking too good for her. And she was watching me in relapse mode and, and saying, don't you dare drink over my grave. And so um, I really didn't want to drink over her grave. That was like the last thing I wanted to do, but I was powerless. I think when I got sober at 20, my idea of the first step, powerless over alcohol, my life has become unmanageable. I switched it around to say, well, if I can get it managed by not drinking, then I might be able to be power, have some power. Um, so it was more of an intellectual idea of the first step. But when I relapsed, it became more of an experience uh, of what it really meant to be powerless and what it really meant like what it really was like to exist in this unmanageability. It was I had no choice. It wasn't up to me. What was going on with your with your kids um, at the time? Because your kids were young. Yeah. So my kids were my my daughter was six months and my son was about three years old when I picked up. And so I was a barroom drinker. My husband, who was also drank on the same night. Uh, well, he drank with you. I said, I'm drinking tonight. You with me? The night of the Sticks concert. He said, Kim, really? I'm like, yep, I'm doing it. He's like, all right. So we both started drinking that day. And so he was an at-home drinker and I was a barroom drinker. And so he stayed home with the kids, totally um, drunk. And uh, I... I was out at the bar room and, you know, I stayed until long after closing hours and I'd seek out whatever else I could. Getting home at 2 a.m. was a good night. Yeah. And so, and it took me three days to recover. So I was home, but I wasn't, I wasn't present. I remember my daughter's um, first sentence was, mommy's sick. And it was like, uh, and another time when my son said, mom, can you come out to the living room? I made the couch just the way you like it so you can lay down. So it's like, oh, my God. Like, And that still didn't stop me. I got arrested. Mrs. You know, Mrs. Richard from you know, Main Street, USA, Miss Sober, got arrested for hitting my ex-husband in the head with a spatula. And I'm so glad I wasn't chopping onions. Oh um, God, I'm just flipping an egg. So, like... <laughs> I'm like, this can't be happening, but it was happening. And I'd call my sponsor, like I would went back to AA and I rehired that sponsor. I said, Hey, will you take me back? She's like, sure, I'll take you back. <laughs> so, uh, but I kept going in and out and I kept changing my sobriety date and I kept getting my one day chips. And I, I said, there's gotta be something like, how can I get this back? It wasn't optional. any like, it was never optional, although I thought it was. So um, my kids were being neglected. They were being neglected. And I had no concept of that. I thought that if I threw a party with 
uh, Teletubby theme for my daughter and invited all her toddler friends and the parents and put on a good face that that was my permission slip to go out and drink. And then we'd swear it off for good. And then my ex-husband would come home drunk. Then I'd be like, oh, good. Now that's my permission to go out and do my thing. Um, And so it was just a vicious cycle. And it just was, uh, I just couldn't stop. And um, at one point, my sister-in-law at the time said if she had never seen me drunk. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably crazy for her. It was crazy. And so she was like, "Uh, if you don't get it together, I'm calling, um, I'm calling DCF or Department of Child and Family to come because this is crazy. And so even hearing that, nope, didn't stop me. What had happened though, is my ex-husband got sober again before me and we had separated, which I was really excited about because then I could do what I really wanted to do. And that was live the barroom life to the fullest, which meant everything that went along with that too. And so I was out of there, out of that marriage. And so what had happened was um, he got sober and my son and daughter went with him on the weekend. This was my fantasy. He can take him on the weekend and then I'll be able to really, you know, have it all. Um, I can have this life over here and then try to keep it together during the week. And that was my goal. And so it had happened that I had arranged, I had to pick them up at a certain time and I didn't show up. And so um, I was with some, you know, I was drunk in a place I didn't belong with, a person I didn't belong with. And I had blown off my kids for like, like I'd been doing for the past three years. If I showed up minimally, I thought that I was the best mother in the world, you know? Um, so the next day I woke up and I'm like, I'm in trouble. You know, I'm in trouble deep. This was my second attempt during those three years um, at a treatment. Uh, the first time I left against medical advice because my mother was babysitting and she, I called her and she was coughing and having difficulty breathing and watching my two kids so I could get sober. And uh, they're like, Kim, you should really stay. I said, no, I have to go. Just like I've heard so many times, there is always like that, that something at home that's really pulling at you to go, go home. I have to go home. And this was perfect. My mother's dying of lung cancer. I have to get back. Yeah. And I was drunk within a couple of weeks of that. So anyway, the second detox, um, my mother had died. And um, so there wasn't that going on anymore. And what occurred to me when she did die was like, Kim, drunk or sober, it still happened. Yeah. So life happens yeah. regardless of my sobriety status. So maybe it would have been better if you were sober. So anyway, I got sober again at 33 years old in, ni- in 2000 about nine months after my mother died. So my mother died in April and again, sober in February. Mm, That's a pretty wild uh, synchronicity. Yes. So, but the second time, and this is something I really feel strongly about because I hear it a lot, like when people are relapse, when they relapse, um, when they get everything AA promised them and then some, and then they relapse, they feel like, and because for me, When I first got sober the first time, the problem was removed and I was welcomed into AA and I felt like that was my tribe and it was magical and I belonged there. But the second time around, I didn't, I didn't feel any of those feelings and I was void of all that. And I wanted to drink so bad every single day. And 
people would say, you know, you didn't lose, you know, you didn't lose what you, you learned. And it's like, I really kind of had to lose what I learned because I sounded really good at every meeting I ever right, went to. Right. I had it, baby. There was no, you, I could talk circles around anyone mm-hmm. um, and baffle them with, you know, all my knowledge, but my knowledge can't keep me sober. And so I would speak, they would say, good job, good job. And I'm like, yeah, good job. Next thing you know, I'd be drunk again. So when I went into the second detox, just to get out of trouble, by the way, I kind of began to say to myself, Kim, you need to forget everything you ever learned. You need to start over. You need to keep your mouth shut. You need to not dazzle everyone with how well you speak because how much did I know if I kept getting drunk? I have a, you know, I'm a drunk of a hopeless variety, you know? And so, and I can, you know, put frosting on that, but it still doesn't make it any less true. So I I tried to be quiet. I tried not to share too much. And I tried to just really listen. Like I had never heard about AA before. And that seemed to work. That seemed to work. And so, but it's not until I got out of that detox and my ex-husband picked me up with my two children because he watched them while I was in detox. He wasn't my ex-husband at the time. We just separated. He watched them during um, my time in detox and after, well, they call it, what do they call it? Um, CSS, Crisis Stabilization Services. Um, that's what they call it in Massachusetts now. But it was uh, 21 days at the time. And when I got out, I ran to my son and I hugged him and he cried and we were crying and we were happy to see one another. And I hugged my daughter who was now, he was six and now she was three. And we made the journey home and my ex-husband left and the kids were here and I had a lot of laundry to do. So I went down to the laundry room and I wanted to drink so bad. Like even after that warm hearted reunion and like all that emotion, I wanted to go to the local bar around the corner and get drunk. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm up against something way bigger than I am. So I, I was really, I had a healthy respect for alcohol, but I also had the phenomenon of craving so bad that I didn't think I was going to, you know, make it. But I understood that this is a whole new ball game. The progression of my disease uh, demanded that I be kind of really aggressive when it came to my recovery program this time around. And so that's is what that, I did. Was that the last time you got sober? Yes. And how long have you been sober? So I just celebrated um, 20 years. Uh, February 6th. Congratulations. Uh, That's amazing. Thank you. Do your kids remember those? Maybe your son does those early days. So I asked them that, you know, cause I, I'm concerned about that. And I do talk a lot. I don't, I talk a lot about what it means to come from an alcoholic home when, um, my daughter might be questioning why she has certain reactions and feelings. And, you know, I'm like, well, you come from an alcoholic home and, you know, probably weren't given the kind of, you know, nurturing you needed. And maybe that's why. And, um, I've even let her read, uh, the, the laundry list of adult children of alcoholics, which kind of brought her to tears. So she is strongly identified with that. So hopefully maybe, you know, it's there if she wants it. And my son, um, so she said, I don't remember. She said, all I know is that you were sober and, you know, 
I had a good childhood. Right. Um, remember, you know, and my son said the same thing. I don't remember when you were drinking. So they don't have any recollection, but I know they were affected by it anyway. Right. Um, right. Obviously. So, what does your sobriety look like today? So my sobriety today looks like I have a job um, in the field of recovery. As far as um, I attend meetings, I just talked to my sponsor before I talked to you. And we talked about, you know, the message that someone else might need to hear might not be up to me. So to just speak whatever, whatever I can, you know, whatever comes out is what was meant to come out. And so she has to remind me of that a lot lately. That's the theme lately. (laughs) And um, so the message isn't about me. It's about maybe someone else needs to hear it. And so I talked to a sponsor regularly. I went through the steps a couple different times, two times in a more disciplined fashion. And um, I try to, you know, maintain my spiritual fitness by practicing those steps to the best of my ability. And so that's, that's like the kind of work and sobriety. But as far as my life goes, as far as personally, I'm pretty, pretty content. There's not a lot of chaos around and I'm kind of like, okay with that. Most of the time I'll, I'll stir some stuff up if I (laughs) get a little bored, you know, but um, it's really pretty, pretty nice. It's, it's nice because it's serene and I'm, I have coping mechanisms now. I've gone through therapy for the trauma um, that that I've been through. That was my next question. Have you utilized therapy as a, as a resource? I was in intense therapy for like eight years because along with alcoholism, I had rageaholism. And so Mm, it wasn't something that, that yeah, well, I had really a lot of difficulty with um, dealing with interpersonal relationships with my children. I had a lot of rage um, when my kids were younger and I was someone who um, was just newly getting sober and rage was my reaction to pretty much everything. What did that look Um, like? So it was a lot of slamming, a lot of taking off in my car, a lot of yelling, a lot of like being a bully and not being a very nice person to my children in those moments, followed by extreme shame um, that I spiraled downward and I felt like being a woman, um, I shouldn't be that angry. It's not right to be a woman and a mother and be that angry and rage filled. So, and the 12 steps wasn't enough. And so someone said, Hey, I'm going to this therapist and you like her. She's one of you. She's one of you because we have on the East coast, um, big book step study, meetings. And so they're pretty popular here. And so, and then they have open AA, but it, it, it is what it, it's all good. You can't fail, but because you're led to where you need to be at the time you need to be there. But anyway, he said, she's one of you. She's, you know, practice the principles, the big book, 12 step way. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Not that it mattered. I needed help. So, but he just said that to kind of like maybe dangle a carrot. I don't know, but he said, go see her. She'll help. And so I went to her and she really helped me to get to the bottom line is that my core belief was I didn't like myself. 
the anger and the rage that I was projecting out against my children and anyone else um, was a direct reflection of how I felt about myself. And that, that, that was a game changer. And like having a therapist who gave me skills to take with me when I left the office was huge, like guided meditation, like breathing, like taking a time out, like, you know, and this, this is when I still have a problem with like loving the inner child. Uh, like that's really still sometimes difficult for me, but, um, like picturing myself as a, as a child and what would I like to see and like my internal parents and all that stuff. So all of those things combined, I mean, she pulled every rabbit out of her hat she could. And for eight years we worked together and the rage has been uh, removed from me. Wow. It's replaced by healthy anger now yeah. um, that I try not to have spill onto other people, you know? Yeah. That's incredible. And yeah. Yeah. So, but the shame around being an angry rage filled woman was like, and a mother and that, was whew, something that no one talked about. Yeah, uh, It's not talked about a lot in AA, you know? And Rageaholic um, isn't talked about a lot, which is... In Rageaholic, And I know yeah. they actually have meetings for that. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it was something well, I heard. I, I'm not I heard surprised. about treatment a long time ago. Yeah, so it's um, it was something that I was very ashamed about and almost like closeted with. Mm-hmm. But like all the people that have been put in my path to help me along the way. Um, that therapist was really key, key to my, you know, long-term recovery, because I don't think had I not addressed that stuff, that shame might've, I don't know what it would have done, but it feels like it was really, really hard to live with. Yeah. Uh, How did you get to, um, the place where you wanted to write this meditation book? So I was working in treatment center. So I've worked in the field of recovery for like God, since my first job, like I said, was in uh, 1989, and I still work in the field, but taking a couple years off to have my kids. But I was working, I was now four years sober. I was working in a local, we caught, we have a TSS. I don't know if you know what that mm-hmm. is. Um, so that's um, the level of treatment between inpatient and residential. So a lot of times people, um, if, you know, their stay wouldn't be covered any longer by insurance in the inpatient treatment. So they'd have to go um, and wait on the streets for their residential bed to open up. So in Massachusetts, we have holding facilities or what we call transitional support services where folks can go and get um stay while they, their halfway house bed before their residential bed opens up. So I was working here and I was four years sober. I was in an another relationship and that relationship ended because I hadn't really, I I didn't really address the stuff and I still a little challenged in that area, but um, I didn't really address my underlying stuff. And so when that person who I chose to call my higher power (laughs) walked out the door, he didn't want the job, but he had it. I kind of had that. I hit the wall. It was like four years sober. I had that. I hit bottom again. In, in recovery and I had like uh, what you might consider a nervous breakdown where my hair was falling out and I had a, like I wasn't even feeling like I was in my body and I lost so much weight which was so awesome but um, 
Oh, that was the best part. Yep. It's terrible. But anyway, um, and I was just like walking, walking around numb. And so they wanted to commit me to the Rogers unit, which is a psych unit in our area. But my boss stepped in when my friends at work said, Kim, you got, you got to go. You need to get in there. And my boss stepped in and said, no, her job is probably the only thing that's keeping her going. We'll keep, you know, let her stay. Let, like, I, I want her to stay and keep coming to work. And so that's what I did. I just kept showing up for work and those people like patch, like just kept putting me back together. But what happened was one day, all these feelings about tra- the tra- feelings of trauma, the feelings of worthlessness, the feelings of not liking myself were kind of coming up in the music that I was listening to. The, the darker side of things, the darker nature, but these same songs were also empowering me to move fo- forward. You know, the energy of the song kind of kept me going, you know? So I was always very interested in how a song could change your mood. I'm like, wow, it's really very fascinating to me always. And so at the time I was working, my coworker came in, he, his name is Scott and he was doing a group and he said, Oh, I got to do one o'clock group. And you know how it is in residential. Like if a crisis is going on and you have to do a group, you know, you don't have a lot of time sometimes to plan that group. Um, and so he's like, you know what, I'm just going to do a music group. Um, he said, this, this house is so negative, you know, there's so much negativity going on. We're going to turn it around with a music group. And I said, Oh, that sounds good. And I, I was known as the singing administrative assistant. I was constantly singing, constantly being scolded for having my radio too loud in my office. And like, (laughs) you know, so I, I loved music. And so he was doing the music group and it really turned the, after the music group was done, the energy in the place shifted, people were happy. And I thought to myself, I said, you know, too bad there wasn't a way that we could have a way that these folks could take a music group with them when they leave, because it helps me. And the first thing when you're doing a biopsych social on someone and you ask, okay, what helps you to cope? You know, the first thing they always say is music, or at least on the top three uh, would be music, exercise, and I don't know, you can pick the third one, but it's like, those are always uh, the most popular. And I said, you know, there should be a a meditation book about that. And so, you know what, I think I'm going to ask friends what they think their best, you know, their favorite meditation, what their favorite song is. And begin to build a library of songs and what it means to people. So that was the original version. And then people didn't want to, or I'm like, where's your song? And they're like, "Eh, you know, I'm busy tonight. (laughs) So I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. So um, that's what I I started to do um, is collect songs along with my children. We'd, we'd be driving in the car and they'd be in the backseat. We'd be speeding along and uh, they'd say, cause I'm from Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not going the speed limit, but we're <laughs> speeding along. And uh, they'd say, I'd say, oh, here's a good song. And we'd pull over and we'd write it down. And so they were with me on this whole journey from the beginning. So um, that's what, you know, that's what inspired me to begin writing. And there's, there was many different reasons to continue writing. And it evolved into what you see today. That's so cool. And your book is on Amazon? Yeah. So my book is on Amazon. It came out December of 2018. And yeah, you can buy it on Amazon for $15.99. And it's really cool. And I also wrote it with a helping professional in mind as well to be able to do the music group on the fly. So all you really have to do is copy the page, download the song, 
and like you have yourself a group, yeah, which makes life a lot easier, especially in residential because it can get crazy, like, yeah, as you know. And and one of your children is in recovery as well. Yes. So my son. So I'm blessed to be a triple winner, right? <laughs> um, triple winner. But along with the legacy of alcoholism, so we now have the legacy of recovery, yeah. and my mother bestowed that on us too. Yeah. So she was the first person to get it, get into AA, and I have a few sober family members and now my son and another, um, his, one of his cousins is sober too in AA. So we're going on third generation. So he's been sober a little over a year. He's doing, he's writing his, his fourth step now and working with a sponsor. And, um, that was quite a, quite a journey. And I really had to learn about detachment and I'd been going to Al-Anon for a long time. Only the faces change yeah. uh, as far as like, you know, who's, who's, who's the next qualifier. Yep. Uh, but that was the most challenging and heartbreaking oh, I'm sure. um, journey. But the other thing is, even if that doesn't continue, I know that my wellness doesn't depend on his recovery. My okayness doesn't depend on him being okay. We're not enmeshed like that. Whereas before, I mean, I would take on that energy when he came, you know, when he was hung over, it's like, I'd feel hung over. Yeah. It was really a, a weird phenomenon. But, um, so like, now I know, like, despite his recovery status, you know, I have to be, you know, I, I have to be separate from that yeah. and live my own life. So that's the biggest gift of Al-Anon. So. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, you have an amazing story. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing it with us. And I'm sure lots of people are going to relate to various parts and follow up with your book. Uh, it is Rock Covery, Not Your Mother's Meditation Book. And they can find you on Instagram at Recovery Meditation Book or uh, Facebook, Rock Covery, Not Your Mother's Meditation Book. Is that right? Yeah, so it's um, R-O-C-K-C-O-V-E-R-Y, so Rock Covery. Covery. Yeah, so. I love it. Yeah. It's so awesome. And yeah, your story thanks. is really amazing. And I think, you know, there's so many different components from, you know, the religious trauma to the sexual trauma to, um, you know, your mom getting sober and all the different pieces. There's not enough time. I think we're all very... um multifaceted. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's so much, you know, it's so much to unpack and it's so much there, but the solution is almost always the same. You know, it's almost always community, um, doing deep inner work, finding your own inner peace and peeling the onion that is ourselves to find the, the core. And it's a lifelong journey. Yes. And having a a trusted support group around you to be able to do that is like, asking for help. And there's so much available today. Yes, Like there's so much, so you never have to be alone. And that's the biggest, yeah. you know, biggest gift of all. It's wonderful. We have a built-in community for the rest of mm-hmm. our lives. We're very lucky. Who can say that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very so. lucky. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, thank you for having I look me. forward to keeping in touch and definitely we'll have to talk about what um, Tom Brady's decision is. Uh, yes. for this coming year. Yes. So we will definitely, we will uh, stay in touch for that. Absolutely. All right. So Kim, glad to meet a fellow. So, yes. Yes. 
Thank you so much for coming and and for um, sharing your story and your vulnerability with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. 